ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We're here, we're live. We've been here exactly one year on this show today. And we've got a great show for you today. If you want to participate, you can. Call us on the phone, get us on the web, or tweet us on Twitter. As usual, we're covering all kinds of amazing and interesting topics in medicine. Today, we're discussing medical mysteries with science writer Dr. Sherry Seataller. She's made a career out of answering health and science questions from the critical to the comical and everything in between for the San Diego Union Tribune. If you got a question for Dr. C. Teller, now is your chance to call in or email. Our number is 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. And our email, sol at reachmd.com. And what other mysteries are on our mind today? How about the reports of a medicated military? A new article in Navy Times says at least one in six service members are on some form of psychiatric drug. And the article goes on to say that these medications are often mixed, shared, and traded in combat zones like they do in the uh, control room here. The most popular cocktails going around, that's coming up in today's forum. And we'll have a look at the current ReachMD poll, all about health information technology's emerging acronyms, a number of which are identical to clinical acronyms. You think you know what RLS, CDS, or even HIT stand for, think again, because we're bridging clinical and technical lingos on today's show. We are so advanced, and we'd be <laughs> behind the times if we didn't spend a few minutes covering the newest trends in medical media, from neurosurgeries broadcast in high-def 3D movie theaters to cellular ringtones that claim to cure allergies. All this and a few other surprises on this week's Second Opinion Live. Our number again, 888-MD1-REACH. Give us a call. But first up... Our regular feature, Curious Headlines. And today we start with a story of replacement bones grown in the anatomical shape of the original. I'd like a new knee, please. The New York Times reports that a professor of biomedical engineering and her team at Columbia University have used human stem cells to grow two small jaw bones from scratch. So... <laughs> I want a knee. Fantastic. I forget the jaw. Absolutely <laughs> fantastic. So here's a basic description of how it was done. The team used digital images of the jaw bones to carve exact three-dimensional replicas, which they call scaffolds, and most of us do, which were then filled with cells isolated from bone marrow or liposuction fat. Now pop that recipe into a specialized bioreactor, which you can get at any of your local store, that controls a steady source of oxygen, growth hormone, sugar, other nutrients. Voila! You've got yourself replacement bones. <laughs> pretty, pretty much sounds pretty easy the way I'm putting it. Somewhere with all the loose stuff in the studio, there must be a few bioreactors and all this <laughs> stuff. All right. But listen, this is serious because tissue engineering is fast becoming a hot business field now mm-hmm. with patents being filed every day, including one by this team for the new technique. We should file one. I'm looking into now, it. Now, the other ways of growing bone are being tried across the country, such as a team in Michigan who's going for a similar technique that more directly uses the body as mm-hmm. an incubator. Which uh, would be really nice if they could figure that one out. And obviously, if the current pace of advancement in these labs hold, it looks like we could be seeing replacement bone techniques becoming routine practice within the next decade, which well, is pretty exciting. It does make sense. I think it's time to venture now into some crackpot science for this a minute. This is my favorite. We've got to do this every week. So <laughs> this, this breakthrough claim is just too good to pass up. From the Japanese team that brought us the bow lingual, 
which, by the way, is a device claimed to translate dog barks into human speech. It works. I have one. Of course you do. Comes the latest health revolution, healing ringtones. Now, here's my favorite application. If you've got allergies, do you, Michael? I think you have allergies, yep. don't you? Just stick that Allergic phone. Allergic to work. Stick your phone up to your nose and let the sound waves <laughs> dislodge the pollen. I wonder where you're going to tell me to stick my phone. <laughs> <laughs> These ringtones, they're selling great in Japan right now. They're claimed to fight a range of ailments from hay fever to insomnia to weight loss. I know the ringtone for weight loss. I'm sure you do. Queens, fat bottom girls. That is the perfect example. Yes. I'm pretty sure this. <laughs> most of us don't need to worry about this one, but the inventor does acknowledge that the science is unproven. I just think it's important for us to consider ourselves warned and informed for that moment when the patient comes into our office with a blackberry wrapped under the nose saying, it's not working. Why is, why is the pollen still in my nose? And I have read of an app that's supposed to shine a different colored light on your face and cure acne. And they're selling this, actually. Fantastic. Being a dermatologist, I'm going to sell them through my office. Fantastic. you got to jump on that bad one. I know. And finally, in this segment, it may not be Avatar, but it is in 3D, HD, and stereophonic sound. Hmm. We're talking about the first live transmission of a neurosurgical operation in to a packed movie theater. Wow. This was part of a festival, a neurosurgical... I've never been to a neurosurgical <laughs> festival organized by the University Hospital of Liège. Now, we know what they give me all the items that have to pronounce French names in this show. <laughs> in Belgium, a special fiber optic cable needed to be stretched over 10 miles from the OR to the theater. Wow. Um, wow. That's definitely a new chapter in health edutainment. I think... Maybe it's time for us to try to broadcast our show in 4D because yeah. nobody beats us. That's right. We're coming out in 4D for the next show, everybody. <laughs> Get your new receivers. Well, who knows where this is all going to wind up. You know, last week we talked about tweeting from the operating room, which was pretty simple. This week we're talking about live surgical procedures with a bucket of popcorn and a Slurpee. You know, where, where does it all end? I, <laughs> I have to admit I have no idea where it ends because that's just the beginning. But I can tell you I know where we're going to go next, and that is over to the ReachMD poll. Belgium. We're going to Belgium. In Belgium. And okay. this week's topic, Health IT Acronyms. Don't you mean H-I-T-A's, Matt? <laughs> Clinically, H-I-T is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. But to anyone with basic tech skills, it also stands for something you order from the mafia. Or health information technology. It's a hit. And in HIT, you won't find many references anymore to EMRs or electronic medical records, which is what I still call them. And probably Because will. that acronym doesn't exist as far as the government's concerned. Was mm. this in the new health care bill? They're changing these? Looks like the So better get comfortable with the accepted acronym, everybody, EHR, or Electronic Health Records. And it gets better because there are lots of abbreviations that go around HIT circles. ABC. So I think we should circle a few of these clinical overlappers brought in by Dr. Joe Kim at the Medicine and Technology blog. Let's start with CDS. A lot of us know that as a controlled drug substance, not so much in HIT. It actually stands for clinical decision support. Cute, dental, seeing, cute dental surgeon. Very cute dental surgeon, which we're seeing more and more of these days in EHRs. You see how I've already integrated You're it there? You're so cool. To enhance order sets. So another one, RLS, we hear restless leg syndrome. Not exactly the case here. It's actually a record locator service, which, I'm going to be honest, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a record locator service. I've got to take a turn at this, but I also have to make a comment before I do. This is getting silly because if we start to use all these acronyms, we're going to have more mistakes than doctors' bad handwriting on prescriptions. We're creating a whole different language, and because they can stand for so many different things, we're going to confuse each other. But how about this? Mm -hmm. CDE. Ever worked with a certified diabetes educator? If not, maybe you're more familiar with clinical data exchange. Oh, touche. And with that, I think we're ready for the poll. 
Okay. We're asking our listeners to tell us what CHI, that's CHI, stands for in the health IT world. Okay. All right. Is it A, coordinated health informatics? See, they gave me this one because I could pronounce it. Hmm. B, consolidated health informatics. All right. C, certified health information. Or D, closed head injury. That's an easy one. Or careful, he's irate, which is what you'd say when the chief comes in and he's mad. <laughs> or cute, healthy intern. All right. Which so, is like an oxymoron. There's no, <laughs> right. there's no healthy intern out so, there. So vote online at reachmd.com slash poll. That's reachmd.com slash poll. And find out what your peers are thinking. Or do you really care in this well, case? Well, <laughs> this peer definitely thinks it's closed head injuries because the more updates I get from this sector, the more my head generally hurts. And you know, we do this in dermatology all the time with acronyms. And we do it to confuse everybody on purpose. We don't want you to know what we're talking about. Well, that's great. That's mm. great. Speaking for all the dermatologists out there, and now you've pretty much pegged yourselves as the bad guys. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> I don't know if in this case, you know, I don't get this stuff as well as you do just offhand because you're smarter, which I'm going to assume, or it's we because, know that. and you keep harping on me for this one, but I still have a Blackberry. You, are, you are a the Luddite. Times. You, with your Blackberry, you are an absolute Luddite. My iPhone does most of the heavy lifting for me, <laughs> and it has better healing ringtones. I have healing <laughs> ringtones for 86,000 diseases yeah. on my iPhone. I now. despise. You and your iPhone. <laughs> Time <laughs> because to... my BlackBerry works just fine for me, just because I'm not as advanced yes. as you guys. All right. All right, all right. Time to welcome our guest for this week, Dr. Sherry Seataller, author of the recently published book, Curious Folks Ask, 162 Real Answers on Amazing Inventions, Fascinating Products, and Medical Mysteries. Sherry is a science and health writer for the San Diego Union-Tribune and has been answering questions on just about everything of interest out there through her weekly column. Sherry, welcome to the program. Hi. Hey, why 162? Why not even 160 or 170? That is interesting. <laughs> I mean, that's a curious question. Why did you pick 162? Now, seriously, we, we want to start with a real question. Uh, welcome to the show, Sherry. How did you get into this? Was this an assignment, or did you always like looking at these things? Like, I like looking at the meaning of words. You know, I'm one of those really nerdy people who's loved science all their lives, and I was originally going to go to graduate school, and sometime while I was studying my little fruit flies, I just had an epiphany and thought, you know what, I don't want to be carving up larvae for the rest of my life. I'd like to do something different. And so I switched, made the switch into education, basically. Love those epiphanies, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I did that going into radio. <laughs> there you go. Um, and, and the one thing that I love about this is that every week I get asked a question that Sometimes I think I can answer it off the top of my head, but I always learn something no matter what because I always you know, go and do more research and find out there's a lot more to the story. So it's fun always being a student of science and, and feeling like I'm always learning something. My patients ask me questions all the time. I just make up the answers <laughs> if I don't know. It sounds Trust good. Me, I'm a doctor. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, I hate to put you on any kind of a hot seat for the fun topics that you've covered here, but I'm really just overall curious to start before we get into some of these if there was anything in the time that, you know, of doing your column, of writing these books that stood out to you, it just blew you away in terms of the I didn't know that factor. I mean, there must have been a few things here and there, health or science, um, any kind of topic otherwise, that must have just kind of blown you away. Yeah, I feel like I learn so much every week, but I think that, you know, overall what's blown me away the most is that even on very simple topics, there's more to be learned. And uh, one example that I have in the book is, 
understanding why our finger, fingers get crinkled. I was going to say that one. I read that one, and I w- my jaw dropped. I go, no, those Golgi <laughs> bodies, damn them. <laughs> <laughs> well, take us through that. I'm really interested yeah. now. Yeah, so, I mean, the old explanation, basically, is that when you get in, you know, the warm tub, the water soaks into the outer layer of your skin, stratum corneum, and so that outer layer of the skin is expanding as the water soaks in, but the layer beneath it isn't expanding. So in order to make up for that extra surface area, the, the skin has to buckle. Well, that's all fine. It seems like a good explanation. That might be even what your mom or your grandmother would give you as an explanation. Um, but once doctors started to, surgeons started to be able to um, replant fingers after accidentally amputated fingers, they found that the fingers, even though they were, you know, they were healthy, they weren't being rejected or anything, they weren't having the same response in the replanted fingers as they were in the rest of the hand and even the finger up to the reattachment point. Um, And what they also found is that the blood flow, so when you plunge your hand into warm water, there's this kind of paradoxical response because normally when you're too warm, the blood comes to the surface of the skin so that you can, you know, lose the heat to the environment. In warm water, there's a paradoxical response that your blood vessels actually constrict. And so what was found is that people who had these uh, reattached fingers, within the reattached finger, you weren't getting that blood flow reduction, especially within the first year or so after that, that reattachment when the nerves hadn't necessarily all completely um, reconnected. And so there's some thought that um, the glomus organs, they're these uh, organs in the skin, they're these clusters of convoluted arteries, they're involved in temperature regulation, um, that when they shrink um, because the blood flow is, is being reduced, that they pull the upper and lower layers of skin together and you get this wrinkling again because, you know, that extra surface area has to go somewhere. And because in the reattached fingers you're not getting this reduction in blood flow, you're not getting um, this wrinkling effect. So it's not, I don't even think that's the final complete answer because if you look at how we behave in cold air, for instance, you also get this, you know, um, reduction in blood flow, but you don't get the same wrinkling. So maybe it's some combination of the stratum corneum gaining more water and also the reduction in blood flow. See, I, I said Golgi. I was so excited. I, I misread it as Golgi's. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so embarrassed now. I put that on live radio. And oh, Sherry, that's okay. You know, I spent three years in a derm residency, and we spent a whole year on that subject. Was, we, <laughs> they gave, they misinformed a whole year of that. The other year was acne, and the third year was making up names. It cost you everything. Yeah, but you were just doing that thing on um, acronyms just now, right. and it could be like the Glomus, the Goldie. You know, you were, you were getting a little Hey, As long as they're Gs. This stuff, is, right. this stuff is wild. I mean, I have to tell you and just add for you and our listeners that as you were kind of giving us this crazy explanation, I'm basically dipping my fingers in water so to see if I. it's going to do it. And Michael over here is <laughs> contemplating taking off a pinky just to see if he can duplicate the effect. No, I was going to dip your hands in water like we did at camp to see if you would wet the bed. Michael is crazy. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD XM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz, whose fingers are wet. Find us on Twitter at ReachMD or find us by phone, 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. We're talking talking with science and health writer and just really funny Dr. Sherry Seataller. <laughs> We're handling the really deep subjects here. Well, we should get into a couple other ones that are interesting because I think one of the interesting aspects of your book was looking into kernels of truth to common medical myths and folktales, the kind of things that come into offices all the time that we have to just dispel over and over and over again that you actually were able to poke a few holes at and say, well, maybe what you think you know isn't 
quite true. Maybe there is some truth to some of these folk tales. And I think one of them, which may or may not lie in that field, is does the question of does being in the cold cause you to catch a cold? I really like that one. Yeah, this is. I think this is a really neat thing because there's um, ongoing research, and if you uh, start looking on Medline or whatever, you're going to find really current papers looking at this. And of course, if you pull open your virology textbook, it's probably going to tell you that no, you know, being cold doesn't make one catch a cold. It's just that in the wintertime, we're all crowded together in these places, and so there's more spread of germs. And if you start looking at the literature, there's some neat studies that have looked sort of at epidemiological things. So there's one that came out recently looking at recruits in the Finnish military because they have um, mandatory military service, so it's a pretty random sample. And they actually found that um, they looked over the course of about six months, so there was a real range in temperatures, and as the recruits were being trained over the six-month period, they really did find that there was a relationship between the uh, amount of a number of people coming in with colds and the temperature. And in this case, you know, these people, their routine isn't really any different in terms of the training and how closely housed and all that they are, Um, whether it's cold or whether it's warm, they're still being forced to train in the same way. Did they bundle up together in any way in terms of being out there together? Because that would, in my opinion, be like a, a confounder. If they could be shown that they were closer together having to be training out there in the cold, that might increase transmission. Yeah, that's interesting. Definitely in the paper, they don't talk about that. But there are some other um, studies that look at some of the effects, some of the reactions that your body has um, in the cold. Uh, So one of the hypotheses in that paper that I just talked about, actually, it's, it's not a completely linear effect between cold and between catching a cold. And they actually found also that within dry conditions, there was more transmission um, of cold viruses, and they thought that at certain temperatures, the cold virus is more stable, and it also seems to be more stable at in dry uh, conditions as well. But there's a number of physiological effects that happen when you're in the cold that may be related to this. So for one thing, when you're cold, the ciliary action, so the little cilia that are responsible in your uh, respiratory tract for sort of keeping things out, they slow down when they're, when they're cold. So they're probably less effective at keeping things out. Um, there is some study on the immune system, and that's kind of mixed. Um, in some animal studies, it looks like cold exposure does suppress the immune system, but in humans, those have been sort of divergent results. Um, also, another thing that happens when you're in the cold is there's this constriction of the blood vessels in the nose. And so one thought is that by in doing that, um, you're reducing your, your access of the uh, macrophages to the infectious agent is being reduced because now the blood vessels have constricted. Um, so I think there's these interesting sort of physiological effects linked with some epidemiological studies. I mean, another study that I talk about in the book is that in places where people um, at the same outdoor temperature, um, you know, in Greece and in Finland, people in Finland will take a lot more precautions against the cold, heating their, their living room temperatures are warmer, they're more likely to wear a hat, and this is at the same temperature, right? It's not um, because it's warmer in Greece. And there's also less risk of dying from illnesses in regions where people take more precautions against No, the, the Greeks are just stoics. They go running outside with any clothes on for miles. <laughs> running around in their togas. Right. The <laughs> there you go. So it's not that there's one single smoking gun in all this. And no one, of course, is saying that, you know, you can catch a cold without being exposed to a cold virus. Of course that's true. But there's all these different studies that are suggesting that, you know, maybe 
it looks like you have, you know, people when they're exposed to cold, they're, they're coming down with colds more. And there's these various mechanisms that could explain why you would be more likely to catch a cold under conditions um, where you're cold. Let's throw out the title of the book for a second. It's Curious Folks Ask, 162 Real Answers. So people will go out and buy this and you will zoom above my books on Amazon. I'll be so jealous. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great book. I think your thing about colds is right. I was always taught, and it's, you know, the nonsense we're taught, in winter the dry environment is a better environment for the cold virus to penetrate. Now, half the studies you talked about kind of suggest that. Mm. So I always tell that to patients. I always go, why did I catch a cold? Well, at least you're covering for yourself then in that case, because for me, this is going to be extremely frustrating because now I can't just, you know, have somebody come to me and say, well, I was out in the cold for a little while. My hair was a little wet. Now I'm I'm concerned I'm going to get a cold or pneumonia or die or something. (laughs) And of course, you know, there's some level of hysteria there and you kind of have to calm that down. But now (laughs) you kind of added a few things that have to make me say, well, you know. I would say get Sherry's book and read it. That's what I'm going to do. Send all my patients to your book for answers. <laughs> Let's move on to another topic, and I think one that interested Michael a little bit as a dermatologist. Dear to was my heart, because it's chocolate, right? Chocolate and acne. Is Not the acne any... part. I love the chocolate. <laughs> is chocolate good for you? I guess we'll put it to you there to start. It doesn't cause acne, but it does cause waistlines to grow. <laughs> so what, what is the deal with chocolate? You, You've you tell me things. the real answer, and I'll tell you what I was taught. Yeah, so I remember, you know, having acne as a kid and being told that chocolate caused acne and having these guilt feelings whenever I ate chocolate, but it really doesn't look like there's any one individual food with maybe one exception that seems to cause acne. So whenever they test, um, you know, French fries, pizza, chocolate, just removing one food from the diet, it does not seem to have any effect on acne at all. Um, In terms of the overall diet, there, there is certainly epidemiological evidence in that if you look at rural, non-industrialized societies, um, like acne was completely absent in Inuit people when they were on their traditional uh, diet, but when they switched to a Western diet, they did, you know, the prevalence of acne increase. So there's some thought that possibly if you have a diet that's high overall in these foods that have a high glycemic index, that it could lead to chronically elevated insulin and maybe a hormone so cascade. Eat blubber. Um, eat what, blubber. What, have you read it? <laughs> and you, and you'll, you'll be fat, but you won't have any acne. Um, what, and then you can get a ringtone to cure all of that. Absolutely. What have you heard? Have you come across anything about hormones in milk and acne? Because that's been filtering through some of the nonsense. If you drink too much milk, all the hormones in the cows will get in the milk, and you should drink organic milk. And that may be a deploy from the organic industry. <laughs> The studies on that are are not very good, I don't think, because there are some studies where you have these uh, correlations. So, you know, you look at a population, say, how much acne do you have? How much milk did you drink as a child? Or how much milk do you drink now? And so some of them find that of those people who have, say they have the most acne, also say they drank the most milk. But who says that the milk caused the acne in that case? I mean, if you have acne, people give you all kinds of health advice. I know. And I'm sure one of them is, oh, drink more milk, you'll be, you know, healthier. And also, whenever you're looking at a retrospective study where people are remembering back to what they ate in the past, that those are kind of unreliable because if somebody thinks something may have caused their acne, they're more likely to remember that particular thing. So I have not seen any very convincing studies. I've seen lots of papers out there where people have made the argument, oh, there's all these hormones in milk, and they are sort of like androgens, and therefore they cause acne. But I've really not seen any convincing 
data to prove the association. That's why every doctor should learn Latin so we can tell patients post hoc ergo propter hoc. You're putting, <laughs> you're putting two things together that are not related. I say that at least 12 times a day <laughs> to patients. Yeah. No, Aristotle, you know. Well, Sherry, we only have a few minutes left, but I want to switch gears just a little bit. There was another, I mean, out of the 162 things, we're just not going to have much time. But there was a, a couple of things in which you mentioned uh, out-of-body experiences, musical hallucinations, and you made particular reference to phantom limb syndromes for people with blindness and deafness. I found that to be absolutely fascinating. Is there anything that you could tell us about that? Yeah, so um, when someone wrote to me about out-of-body experience, I honestly had no idea that you know, this was within the purview of science. I, I really thought this guy's a little strange, maybe on something. But it turns out there's really interesting studies, and they're published in great journals, Science and Nature. Uh, some of the studies are sort of virtual reality things. Some of them are um, brain stimulation during epilepsy treatment. Um, sort of the short on the out-of-body answer is that it looks like there might be um, – times when the information from different senses, information from vision, information from touch, information from hearing, and maybe also your sense of balance are out of sync, and that can give the out-of-body experience. And specifically, these can something like this can be replicated when you stimulate the angular gyrus, which is the region of the brain where some of these senses come together. And people have been you have this region stimulated as part of, you know, um, exploration during epilepsy treatment, have had something very like um, this out-of-body experience. And they've also been able to create it using head-mounted video displays. So I'll, I'll leave that because you wanted me to talk a little bit about the, um, the phantom limb syndrome. So in response to that out-of-body, when that was published, I had somebody else write to me and say, I'm hearing things. <laughs> But it was someone who said, you know, I'm hearing snippets of a song playing in my head and, you know, this sorts of thing. And it turns out that people, there's three different syndromes. Um, one is this, you know, hearing things that aren't necessarily there. One is seeing things that aren't necessarily there. And one is feeling so the phantom limb syndrome. Um, and so what it seems like is that people who, who have... Um, sometimes high blood pressure or any type of hearing loss, even certain drugs can cause it, uh, can sometimes hear things that are not there, and, and in, analogous with the phantom limb syndrome, and analogous with... And I, actually, I'm hearing our producer talk in my ear saying, we have to kind of stop this interview because we are live. Okay. And I'd love to have you finish that, and maybe we'll have you back. We have to have you back on this one because okay. that's one of my favorite topics. Because it'll be an out-of-body experience when we have you back. Okay. <laughs> All right. Or they can read the book and find the answer All in there right. about what's <laughs> thank, going on. Thank you. I hate, I hate to cut you off, but we have to. Our guest today has been Dr. Sherry Seatala. Get her book, folks ask. Sherry, thank you for being a guest on Second Opinion Life. Please come back and talk to us because there's more curious stuff here to talk about. All right. All right. Here's a curious thing for you. Polar bear liver. Don't eat it. It's toxic. That's one thing. <laughs> That's a nice unique All right. One. Now on to the ReachMD forum, Matt. <laughs> this week we're looking at a report in Navy Times which is raising some eyebrows. Claims are that at least one in six service members in the armed forces are on some kind of psychiatric drug. And many are mixing pills. Mm. Pretty dangerous. An investigation to records obtained from the Defense Logistics Agency, that's DLA, showed that the use of all psychiatric medications among troops has increased dramatically, about 76% overall, with some drug types doubling since the start of the current wars. So let's put this in perspective. The Army's highest-ranking psychiatrist, who's a brigadier general, told Congress recently that 17% of the active duty force and as much as 6% of deployed troops are on antidepressants. Now contrast that to the 10% of Americans who take antidepressants, and that's a very big difference. 
And uh, this doesn't even account for off-label use among these troops. I mean, the report details that several drugs intended for treating bipolar disorder and schizophrenia are now used off-label for symptoms of PTSD. It's post-traumatic stress disorder. I know that one. Oh, very uh, good. It really looks like the antipsychotic medications have spiked most dramatically here. Mm. Orders jumped more than 200%. Oh. And the use of anti-anxiety drugs, sedatives, and anti-epileptics also rose substantially. I would take an Ambien and sleep out the war, yeah. honestly. It knocks you out. Yeah, there's things. also apparently a lot of trading of drugs going on here, kind of like baseball cards. According to the report, and when you consider that several of the newest antidepressants have black box warnings for increasing the risk of suicidal ideations and behaviors, this is really scary. Yeah. You've got a guy with a gun, a military weapon, on a drug that may increase suicidal thoughts, and maybe he'll take his friends out with him. This is something that is like a serious subject here after the last one. Yeah. They're playing with fire. Yeah. There have been a number of anecdotes among the military of soldiers who have said, you know, I've wondered if I just need to end it here. It would be so easy because I have this gun on me. Um, I have all the tools at my disposal. I'm extremely depressed, if they're even aware to that point, to be able to say such things. And it's scary that they're trading these drugs around. Well, trading, that's the scary part, because when you start trading and mixing drugs, I don't know who what's knows what the effects who, who knows what the effects of in any one individual These person. are schizophrenia and bipolar drugs. Right. I mean, these are and these are guys different. under stress in a war zone. I think this is something that the Army needs to take a serious look at. Yeah, and I think we need to look into how the drugs of these caliber enter the war zone so readily, such ready supply, and whether there is a defined link to suicide. I think it needs to be determined. Yeah, let's take care of our soldiers, everybody, and protect them from these things. Serious subject here. Really serious subject. And I think that's going to do it for us here on Second Opinion Live. Our producer tells me I've got some new ringtones to test out for countering allergies. Where there's a ringtone, there's a cure, and also probably a placebo. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And for more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, visit our website at reachmd.com slash SOL. Feel free to give us a shout on Twitter, online, and on Facebook. You can also follow us on your iPhone, iPhone, Matt, with all those apps. Until next time, I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. Thank you for joining us. We love that you're here. Keep your radio dialed in to reach MDXM 160. Call up and tell them we're the best show on the station. Thank you.